Oh, hi, this is Airspace. (laughs) (laughs) You know us as Airspace, but really we are Matt Schindel and... Emily Martin. And we're missing Nick Partridge today because he's had some big life things going on. (laughs) Like literally creating new life, welcoming it into the world. And speaking of life... They're looking for life on Mars. Welcome to this episode of Airspace from the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum with help from PRX. We're here today to talk about a new rover from the European Space Agency, or ESA, and about how that rover got its awesome name. When are they launching? They're launching at the same time that our new rover is going to be So it's another 2020. Yeah, it's another Mars 2020 mission, or I shouldn't say Mars 2020, because that's what our rover, at least for now, is called. It might get a new name, which the ESA rover just did. The ESA rover just got its new official name. Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin, that's right. And it sounds like a real person because it is named after a real person. We've had a lot of rovers named for abstract values like curiosity and spirit and opportunity. And now we have a rover named for a really impressive biologist. Franklin and her colleagues played a key role in our understanding of the structure of DNA. The Rosalind Franklin rover is pretty exciting, too. We started seeing engineering models of this rover last summer, and they are pretty beautiful. This is a nice-looking rover. It is. It's sort of like we were talking about this before we started recording. It's sort of like if you took one of the Mars Exploration rovers, Spirit or Opportunity, and you sort of, like, mashed it up with the Curiosity rover, which is on Mars right now. Like both of them, it's got that kind of like tall camera head that looks a little bit like Wally. Yeah, kind of a mast with a camera on top. Right. But the European Space Agency, ESA's Rosalind Franklin rover, is mm-hmm. going to do stuff that NASA's rovers haven't done yet. Yeah, it's going to drill down into the surface of Mars about two meters and look for signs of life. So not dissimilar to what the Mars InSight lander is doing right now. Right, but whereas the InSight lander is a seismic experiment primarily, this is going to be all about looking for life. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? So it's really fitting that they end up naming this rover after Rosalind Franklin. Yeah, she was a very talented molecular biologist, and these days she's recognized as a famously integral contributor to our understanding of the double helix structure of DNA. Part of a team of molecular scientists who use really specialized tool, like a sort of a x-ray process that can sort of zero in on and capture a visual of the actual structure of DNA. Rosalind Franklin is somebody with a pretty spectacular story. Back in the 1950s, Scientists didn't have the understanding that we have today about DNA and how it works. They knew that DNA by that point was the genetic material, but they didn't understand its structure and they so didn't understand... So they knew it existed. Yeah. Did they know it was made up of genes and other things? Did they know its chemical composition? They hadn't quite figured out what you're alluding to, which is sort of the way that base pairs go together in a double-stranded DNA uh, double helix. So kind of like a rigatoni. <laughs> no, not rigatoni. Um, what's the twisty one? Oh, uh, what is that one called? Rotini? Rotini. It <laughs> yeah, looks a little bit like, like a rotini. Like a rotini. I had rigatoni on the, on the mind. <laughs> So getting back to Franklin, in 1950, she was awarded a really prestigious fellowship to work at the biophysics unit at King's College in London. And she was a part of a team there that was studying the structure of DNA using highly specialized imaging. 
it took her 100 hours to zero in on this one image, a famous image called Photo 51, which I think is awesome because it reminds me of Area 51 and those things are totally unrelated. But it then took another year to decipher the double helix structure from the image. And meanwhile, there were other scientists at other universities who were also studying DNA to try to determine its structure. The duo that ultimately became really famous was about a two hours drive away at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. I think most people um, have heard of Watson and Crick. Right. Well, they, along with one other scientist, Maurice Wilkins, shared the Nobel Prize in the 1960s for that discovery. And it turns out the way Watson and Crick ultimately made their discovery of the double helix structure was using Photo 51. They never told Rosalind Franklin that they used it. So... Maybe we should talk a little bit about the DNA research being done at the time by Watson and Crick. Some folks like Watson and Crick were trying to figure out the structure by building models. Building models based on the way that they knew that these chemicals that DNA was made up of would behave. Like toothpicks, soda straws models? A little bit more sophisticated, but yeah. Numerical models. If you ever were in, in college, you took a college chemistry class where you had to build chemical models. Oh, like sticks and balls? Yes, exactly. So that's the type of models that they were building. And a lot of people said, you know, you guys, that's kind of dumb and childish. Why are you building models when you should be getting real data? Um, And the real data actually is the type of work that Rosalind Franklin was doing. So she was using a a technique called X-ray crystallography to look at the actual structure through the patterns that that x-rays would make when you sort of pass them through the DNA material. So maybe this is a picture we should post on Instagram, but the actual image, it's it's technically not an image, but work with me here. (laughs) We're going to call it an image for for simplicity's sake. But the image that Rosalind Franklin actually took shows you this kind of x, which if you think about it as sort of a Mm cross-section or representation of a cross-section through that double helix. Because if you take a double helix and you cut it down the middle, it's going to look like an X. Yeah. Um, And that's really the sort of smoking gun. That's the sort of like extraordinary evidence you would need in order to make this claim. Right, exactly. So that type of evidence plus chemical evidence about what the different base pairings might be based on their chemical behavior, this is what gives Watson and Crick the clues that they need to build the model that they build. Her data was absolutely key to what they um, finally settled on. And then she kind of got written out of it for a while. Right. Written out of it and condescended to and... Well, and Watson hasn't really stood the test of time. He wasn't a particularly uh, cool dude. He's gotten himself into a lot of hot water making comments about race and gender um, that are way behind the times. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll debunk some of the crappy stuff Watson said about Franklin. And we'll talk about the super cool Rosalind Franklin rover and how it's got its name. So getting back to Franklin, when, Matt, you were showing me these quotations that you had copied from, what book was that? That was Watson's book, uh, The Double Helix. So he was writing this in 1968, which certainly doesn't excuse any of the language. Yeah. It was, appa- it was appalling. It's, I mean, it's it was, cringeworthy. It's cringe. It's every bad thing you could say when speaking about another human, in, in right. this case in particular, about a woman, right? right? Talking about her clothes, her makeup. Here, here, I'll read just a little bit. So, for example, 
By choice, she did not emphasize her feminine qualities. Though her features were strong, she was not unattractive and might have been quite stunning had she taken even a mild interest in clothes. This she did not. By the way, that's false. She spent a lot of time in Paris. This is all fa- completely irrelevant yes, to the of course ability it's irrelevant. that she had to actually do good work. So let me go on. There was oh, never. Go on. Does it get better? Oh, it's it gets worse. There's never <laughs> lipstick to contrast with her straight black hair. So, so can we skip to the part where she does actual science? Uh, yeah. Because right. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, m- m- most of his attention is on how difficult of a person she was to work with, and you know, wouldn't you be a little bit difficult to work with too if you were being condescended to by a bunch of hotshot? young biologists, all of whom think that, you know, they're going to be the, yeah, and they're going to be the next big thing. Yeah. I think there's one word in there where he says something to the effect of like, she is more or less competent, I guess. Yeah. But all of that said, we now have a rover going to Mars, (laughs) honoring her, being named after her, that's going to go search for life. And she was, she played such a large role in our understanding of life, how our DNA is built and what it does. Yeah. You know, rover missions can be a great time to be a historian, (laughs) especially when they're named after historical (laughs) figures and people want to know who that person was. So I'm not particularly up on this, Matt. So you're going to hopefully, as the historian, you're going to fill this in. Um, I'm sure NASA has a really specific way in which the rovers get named. I think it was a competition, right? Yeah, they've done a few different competitions over the years. So when we sent the Pathfinder mission to Mars back in the 90s, it carried a rover. And um, NASA held an essay contest asking school kids to write about who their favorite female hero was from history. They specified female? Yeah, they did. They specified female. I didn't know that. And then Spirit, Opportunity, and Curiosity, those were also contests, right? Yeah, so that again was an essay contest for Spirit and Opportunity. They had middle school students write about, um, you know, what would they name the Rovers? And the winner was actually a a child who had spent her early life in a, like, Siberian orphanage and then was adopted by an American family. And she talked about the sort of spirit and opportunity that had been provided to her by becoming an American. Yeah. So with the European Space Agency, their rover is going to go up around the same time as NASA's mm-hmm. um, rover, which has yet to be named. Right. Um, but We've been calling it Mars 2020, be- but that'll probably change. <laughs> it doesn't have a ring, doesn't have quite have the same ring to it. Not quite. Rosalind Franklin, that name was submitted in a competition. I don't think it was an essay competition, right. but it was about 36,000 entries suggesting From all around names. Europe, yeah. So... Um, And then a final committee from the ESA and the UK Space Agency um, decided that they wanted to go with Rosalind Franklin, which a lot of people had proposed. So I would have loved to see who else was on the the top five list or something. Rover McRover face. (laughs) Bodie McBoatface. Um, I don't even remember what that boat was for, but Bodie McBoatface. It won. It's what happens with Yeah, that was 2016, the year that crowdsourcing (laughs) failed us. Ultimately, it's why you sort of let everybody make their contribution and then you leave it up to a committee of professionals to finally come up with the top contender. Yeah, and Rosalind Franklin really is such a great name. 
It gives the science world a fresh occasion to honor an impressive scientist and to right what you could see as a historical wrong. The knowledge of DNA structure has continued to drive cutting-edge research. And we can only wait and see what cool discoveries Rosalind Franklin, the rover, might help us to find, you know, life forms on other planets like Mars. That's it for this episode of Airspace. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> That's kind of fun. <laughs> it was kind of fun, but I think they're going to cut it. So yeah, I feel okay. like we should start back at the beginning. <clears throat> All right. That's it for this episode of Airspace. Airspace is produced by Katie Moyer, Jocelyn Frank, and Lizzie Peabody. Mixed by Tarek Fuda. Special thanks to Jason Orfanon, Genevieve Sponsler, and John Barth. This episode was supported by PRX and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org.